0: Hi, welcome to the Food in the Edge podcast, and I'm your host, JP McMahon. Hi, and welcome to another Food in the Edge podcast. This time, we're going to be looking at the highlights from our fifth year, and we're going to start off with uh, the team. I suppose the team was, uh, we had a new team this year, but as other years, we rolled out the previous teams to give our speakers different things to talk about. As as many of you know, chefs often don't like to talk on topic, but our new team was migration, and I suppose it's quite fitting with the world that we live in. I think there's a lot of people moving about at the moment because of all sorts of reasons, um, war, natural disasters and etc but what that does is it it moves food around as well and so these are some of the things that we forget to think about when we talk about food we often think about food in terms of its uh, nationality whether it's Irish food or Italian food or Brazilian food but what we forget about is that when people migrate and people have migrated for thousands of years and uh, in fact people have always been migrating, the food changes when they arrive or as as they arrive Irish food is is very different now than it was 20 years ago or it was 40 years ago of course there are staples there and this could be a good way of looking at anywhere in the world but I suppose I I wanted to see how the different speakers from all over the world this year thought about the idea of migration and uh, we had some very good talks and uh, we'll have a look at them later on but it's also migration is also to do with technology as well and how technology migrates from one part of the world to another and changes food and so this is I suppose a good example of that would be technique of sous vide which migrated and now is fairly common it's in people's houses as well but it wasn't common 20 30 years ago but it migrated around the world and it changed the way that we cook food and, and possibly things like kochi fermentation which is I suppose a tradition traditional way of making uh, soy sauce in and misos in Japan I suppose in the last couple of years has migrated into the West in a large way. And while it's still the preserve of of just a few restaurants, I really think that this new wave uh, of food migration will change the way that we cook and the things that we do in the next couple of years. So as well as the theme of migration, we also carried over the themes from the previous year. And of course, the first year we we did the future of food, quite a broad theme, and quite a number of speakers spoke about the future of food. Say Josh Nyland talked about the future of fish, and his talk was called Beyond the Fillet. And I suppose Josh is a a great example of of someone who's trying to change the way we think about foods that we see every day, and fish is is one of those. An interesting fact that Josh brought up was that we only use about four 45% 45% of the fish that we land, in terms of the taking the fillet off it and discarding most of the rest of the fish, and Josh in his uh, restaurant uh, Saint Peter, and also in the fish butchery, both are in Sydney. They're actually beside each other. Josh is getting 91%, I think, uh, return from the fish, and that's just using the offal, using the head, using every single bit, a bit and piece. Even the eye, he makes a cracker from the eye. And these are things that might be the preserve of a very kind of avant-garde restaurant at the moment but these are changes that will I think impact the way that we think about fish consumption particularly because of overfishing and the amount of fish that we're taking from the sea and we need to utilize it better. Year two we talked about action and reaction and the different actions that people are taking around the world to try and change things. An example on the reaction side we had um, Rami Gill who is an Indian chef who's based in the UK and her talk from one homeland to another talked about I suppose was the reaction of coming to the UK, being, I suppose, an outsider in that capacity and then taking action and then opening up a restaurant. Romy's not a a trained chef, but she is, uh, I suppose, like myself, self-taught and wanted to, I suppose, to give people an insight into the food of of her culture. So, of course, the theme of migration was there as well, but it was a direct action that Romy took to try and change things. The conversational element, which was a key part of, of year three, I suppose that really brought in the different panel discussions that we had over the years, and we, I suppose, we've always tried to keep that now, as well as having individual speakers and two people speak on stage. But we had Doreen and Rachel Allen, who uh, from Ballymaloe, a very famous Irish institution in terms of in terms of food, talk about the vision of Ballymaloe back from when Myrtle set it up in the late 1960s, and how that I suppose began the journey in Irish food that Food in the Edge continues to do. And the final theme that we have looked at over the previous years is uh, the food story of the chef. I suppose that is particularly resonant with a lot of people, particularly, I suppose, with the rise of different series on Netflix, such as Chef's Table and and series like that, that tell the story of the chef or the the narrative. And I suppose people always think about the story of the food and the story that food brings. And and there are many, many stories in, in, in food. And often the, the stories that we need to uncover are perhaps the most important ones. And, Probably one of our most noteworthy speakers this year was Ben Shruri. Ben runs a restaurant called Attica in Melbourne, and is very much involved in looking at the indigenous cuisine or the indigenous food of the Aboriginal people, but also with the relationship of that food to modern-day Australia. And Ben is very, very interested in this, and his talk, Shut Up and Listen, was about ways in which, I suppose, contemporary or modern Australia has exploited the Aboriginal community and not only in terms of land but in terms of of their culture, even of recognising they even had a culture. I suppose for me this was an important part of thinking about indigenous cultures and past cultures and Ben showed a map of Australia, from the perspective of Aboriginal cultures. And it's a very, very different place to, I suppose, how we think about modern Australia and how it was mapped by the British and subsequently by Australians in the last 250 years. And when we think about Aboriginal culture that goes back nearly 40,000 years at least. It's important to to remember different ways of mapping and it also I suppose, got me thinking about ways in which we map Ireland and uh, the way Ireland is divided now and I mean the way Ireland is divided into counties um, and provinces is very much a a modern way of thinking about Ireland and there are many many different ways to to think about this configuration so it's just an interesting thing to think about when you look at Ireland say a thousand years ago you there were a lot of different lines drawn around the country and these lines move back and forward and i suppose in the last 200 years lines boundaries or geographical boundaries haven't moved so much um, i think that's pretty much suppose, the different themes that we that we went through over the last 5 years i think this year the biggest change was trying to think a little bit more outside the box in terms of how chefs are are changing their food culture and chefs and other people I mean we've always been quite focused on chefs Uh, I suppose that is our the main driving force but it's always important for me to bring other people speakers like Arlene Stein or Alan Jenkins food professionals and people who are in the food industry who articulate change and who can can see or perhaps perceive better the some of the changes that need to to take place Uh, we also really tried this year to get as many people from as many places as possible. So in terms of having people from India and from Ghana, Singapore, Colombia, all of these places where we I suppose haven't had people who've come from before and it's important for them to share their food story with us. The purpose of that being that we often think that the, the problems that we have with food are endemic to ourselves but this isn't the case at all and really the food problems that are anywhere in the world are reflect our own issues and that's a good, a good case in point when we bring people from Singapore or India uh, and they tell us about the difficulties they're having and then we realise that those difficulties aren't particular to that place they're also particular to Irish cuisine as well and Ivan Brehm who spoke about crossroads cooking in India. And Ivan is looking at a different, uh, I suppose a way of thinking about authenticity and and looking around the world and looking at what is authentic and what is not authentic and and really changing our idea about that. And uh, Ivan talked about migration and the migration of food. And really when you think about the migration of food, there is no authenticity or there's no authentic one original dish. These dishes change and they transform with the people who uh, Take um, them with them. It's only really when they become codified in, in books or institutions that we have this issue of, of authenticity. But it is, it's an important one to keep in mind, particularly around the idea of immigration. So Food in the Edge took place in NUI again this year. And I suppose I want to talk about a few of my highlights from uh, from Monday. And, and a lot of our talks will be up online on our channel on Vimeo. Many of them are on, on YouTube. So you can access those from, from past years uh, by just, just put, uh, Googling Food in the Edge or even putting in the speaker's name with Food in the Edge. And uh, they're easily found. I suppose some of my takeaways from the Monday. Um, I suppose I mentioned Josh already in terms of his uh, going beyond the fillet and trying to think about fish in a new way Josh has a new cookbook out and I'd really recommend it for anyone who's interested in fish and trying to take, get a bit more from fish. One of the things that I'm most interested in is fish charcuterie and, and using fish in the way we use pork products or beef products and we've done this in the restaurant and I find it's a great way of, of utilising fish and injecting more flavour into it of ageing it and um, it's a remarkable way to, to, I suppose to use it in, in, in a different way um, and it, it's it's surprising for the customer too as well, the way that Josh ages fish is uh, the way that we, I suppose, similar to the way we would age beef, is probably the most innovative thing that, that Josh has done. And Josh is aging fish from up to a week to three weeks uh, by taking the scales off and hanging them in about a zero degrees with um, seventy or eighty percent humidity. It is it does make a remarkable difference because often we think about eating fish straight out of the ocean when it's when when it what we call it fresh, and then we think about beef uh, in terms of aging it, and beef is aged from anywhere up to 3 weeks to 3 months or to or to a year and then we talk about the flavor developing, but the same process can occur in, in fish in, in different ways. And that would be probably one of the key things to take away from Josh's talk. We also had a speaker from Japan who, who opened Food in the Edge, uh, Shinobi Naem, and Sonobi, Sonobu, sorry, uh, who actually just got two mission stars there recently, looked at the heritage and, and future of Japan. As well, for me, what was most interesting in this was the way in which that we as an island can learn from the Japanese Japanese and we've spoken about this before on the podcast in terms of seaweed and fish and the way we treat them and, and this ties in with Josh because I think a lot of what Josh is doing is influenced by how the Japanese treat fish as again as something that is, is worthy of our attention and aging and and the practice of charcuterie. All of these things that we I suppose we we really put in the domain of um, pork and beef products because we are people of the land and, and that is the way that uh, these things are articulated but Shinobu, I suppose it was interesting to look at some of the ways in which migration had infected the Japanese cuisine and the things that we think are Japanese. Uh, many of them originated on the mainland in China and so that difference is important because I was Japan and China are very different places now and uh, sometimes they don't see eye to eye at all so the, it's important to see where food comes from because if we can see where food comes from then we can possibly link these two places and create communities uh, that where that may talk to each other rather than I suppose rather than ignoring each other this year was um, uh, I think the second time actually we've had a speaker from the African continent we had Selassie from Ghana and her talk This is Africa again was a really great talk about African food heritage and even when we speak of the idea of Africa we don't think about it in terms of it's the same as saying Europe and if we think about Europe there's so many different regions and places and peoples and really that's one way we need to start thinking about Africa is as a continent as opposed to just a singular place but Selassie looked at the influence of African culture and cuisine but also in the ways that the West has, has never negatively impacted upon Africa particularly in terms of fast food places that are opened up all over Africa who supply cheap food at the detriment of an indigenous food culture. And that could be the same here in the different food giants that operate extremely low cost food that uh, that feed an awful lot of people, and I suppose we need to think about how that impacts our own food culture and what we may want to do about that. A friend of mine, uh, Dennis Lovatel, who is uh, an Italian chef who specialises in pizza. I cooked with Dennis a couple of years back. We we did a collaboration between himself and uh, and Anir, and we looked at the I suppose the ingredients that we use in Anir and how they m- might work on a pizza. And I suppose that might seem quite unorthodox and it might seem quite heretical if. If you're if you're from Naples, but I suppose ultimately the idea of the pizza as a as a piece of flat bread has migrated all over the world and it migrated to Italy. I mean the flatbread certainly didn't start in, in Italy. And the idea of a pizza with tomatoes and cheese is, is a relatively new idea. It's it's a couple of hundred years old and the tradition of eating flat uh, flatbread with certain condiments is, is much much older than that. And so Dennis is looking at the ways in which we can use the language of pizza to talk to younger people in terms of gastronomy and how we can put maybe make seasonal pizzas and how we can change the the toppings and the ingredients on pizzas and get away from this idea of of authenticity and the and the real and move into an entirely entirely new realm and as he said, that pizza is the gastronomic language of the young. All young people understand what a pizza is, and essentially, a pizza is a piece of flat bread with some tomatoes and uh, and cheese on it, and it is essentially a, a whole food. and nowadays when we think about pizza we think about it in terms of fast food and junk food but that doesn't have to be the case and it certainly wasn't always the case and, I, and as, as I always say to people when we're making bread in an area in our cooking class like the, the pizza is a whole food it is three ingredients that, that are put together, assembled and then cooked. It's only really when this turns into a manufactured product when you add in another 20 ingredients and other things that I suppose are not necessary to the making of this particularly sugar because I suppose sugar is something that makes things taste nicer and sweeter and it's something that our that our bodies i suppose continually look for but pizza is uh, is something that we can really you uh, we can use these um or the idea of these these foodstuffs and i think that i suppose what i took took away from dennis's talk is you can take i suppose the significant parts of uh, of any food culture and whether it's a pizza in italy or it's a taco in mexico or it's a, a curry in India and you can utilise these foodstuffs to communicate the ideas that you need to communicate so whether it's you want to communicate an organic philosophy or you, commun- you want to communicate a local food philosophy whether you want to bring together a community all of these things can come together no matter where you are so it doesn't. you don't have to be Italian to make pizza or Mexican to make tacos they can be made anywhere and they can be made in the spirit of where they come from and they can be used to create a food community, and I think this is—I uh, think this is where we see the best food occurring in places. It's not necessarily the places that are, I suppose, mining the local or the indigenous in their in their areas. Often, it's it's uh, people who are not from there, who are migrants, who are cooking uh, for a lot of people using the language of their homeland. And I think Mexico and Italy have a wonderful food following all over the world in terms of the, the attitude towards towards their food, and we need to respect that. We also need to realize that it can be used to, to bring communities together. And many years ago when we did Breaking Bread with the food festival, we invited the different food communities in Galway, all of which I think added up to about 48. So there was 48 different nationalities present. And they all made a dish from their community and, and gave a sample of it as part of the food festival on the last day. And it really showcased the different food cultures that are present in Galway that we didn't, that we didn't know about. Of course we know about Brazilian or Polish or Spanish or Italian or French, but like there's another 45 plus that, that are unacknowledged. And it's important to bring these ones to the fore. And probably just the last talk I want to draw attention to on the first day of Food in the Edge was Sophia Hoffman. Sophia is a vegan chef and uh, Sophia gave a talk about why I'm not a trained chef and it was like it was an interesting thing to think about uh, from my point of view of not being a trained chef but from Sophia's point of view was that from someone who is interested in cooking vegan food the syllabus of training chefs at the moment uh, has no interest in this field at all at the moment and so if you train as a chef you I suppose it doesn't uh, give you the methods or the, the ability to cook vegetarian or vegan food and it's a really important thing to think think about and maybe we need to branch out and we need to look at other areas I mean our system is predominantly French, it is influenced by the French, again it's it's a system that is 150 or 200 years old this idea of training chefs in a brigade, of training the classics and we need to I suppose think beyond that and we really need to start thinking about well how do we train people to cook vegetarian or, or vegan food because it is popular, it's something that I'm interested in it's not something that I um I suppose that I would exclude myself too I'm also very interested in, in eating and cooking meat and fish and, and all sorts of other things like insects even uh, but it is an important element and I do think it can contribute to the ways in which we can change our climate because I mean the elephant in the room in Ireland is is the beef and as we speak Dublin is located with tractors but farmers looking for better prices for their beef while factories make an awful lot of money and I suppose essentially the problem is not that I, I suppose I disagree with the farmers. I think I feel sympathy with the farmers I think they should be getting a price for their beef there's no point in subsidising one aspect of food production while another aspect of it makes 100 million but I do think that we are producing too much beef in Ireland I think that we need to diversify and this also goes into fish It's not. I don't exclude it to vegetables but I do think where we fall down upon a lot in Ireland is the production of, of vegetables we, I've mentioned this before on the podcast we have 160 or so commercial vegetable farmers left in the country, most of our farmers do not want to grow vegetables anymore because of cheaper imports. There's no point. We have a protection against our industry, our beef and industry, beef and dairy industry, uh, in terms of when you go and buy beef and dairy in the shops, they are pretty much, I would say, 99% Irish, if not 100%. I think it's rare you would come across any imported milk into Ireland. And that's because we produce a lot of it. But we don't care the same for potatoes or any other vegetables. And this is really important because of the precarious nature of the world today and if anything happens like a storm or a, a terrorist attack or a war, then we would be left with a, a, f- a food deficit in Ireland and so we, we really need to try and encourage people to diversify in Ireland, to grow more and to have a diverse type of production on their land and I think farming, whether it's beef farming or sheep farming, works best in relationship to other types of farming um, and whether that's vegetable farming or we go onto the coast and it's seaweed farming or shellfish farming or fish farming all these things have to work in symbiosis to try and produce a better foodstuffs so that's day one for me and we'll move on to day two now So I must correct myself. I was talking about Ivan Brem, who Ivan's uh, uh, restaurant is in Singapore and not India. It's Pratik, who is from India. Both Ivan uh, and Pratik were in in an ear on uh, the night before, and I, I suppose I confused the two of them. And that is, I, I hold my hand up to that, just in case Ivan is listening, because I'm sure if someone said that I was my restaurant was in England, I would get upset as well. So sorry about that. Before I go on to the highlights of day two, I just wanted to note that we also had the masterclasses. I suppose that I think. Started last year, we got a great reception from them, and it was a way of trying to introduce our speakers to a smaller number of participants. Uh, we have about 550 people in total at the symposium, but we limit the masterclasses to about 50. And we had some great masterclasses this year. On the Monday, we had Doug McMaster, Mike and Beck from, from Amshire, which is a recently awarded two stars in Ireland, uh, Will Goldfarb uh, and Stephen Bell. They I suppose they all gave us quite intimate discussions of what they do. Mike and was talking about in the non-alcoholic pairing and i think that's it's a very very important thing to think about in restaurants today particularly in in fine dining restaurants that are i suppose focusing on food and i suppose forget to think about the, the food aspect of drink, and we always fall on the idea of, of the wine pairing. And it's it's for me, it's interesting to think about what else we can pair, particularly in Ireland when we don't produce any wine or we produce very little wine. Uh, David Welland is making wine in Dublin, and there's one or two others I think as well. But there's lots of beer, cider, whiskey, gin, all these things that we can utilize to pair with food. And I think it's the way forward to think about it in terms of. Um, um, Irish restaurants and because it is still a, quite a colonial thing to pair wine with your food so it's a French way of dining and it's it's a way of dining that is all over the world if you have a tasting menu in India or you have a tasting menu in Norway or you have a tasting menu in I don't know in, in South America I am sure they will all be paired with wine and we need to try and break that mould to a certain degree I'll move on to Tuesday and then I'll talk about the master classes on Tuesday and I, I can't get to all of the speakers as I couldn't on Monday and there are so many. All of the speakers that spoke this year are online in terms of the, a photograph of them, a little bit of bio. We'll get as many um, videos of their talks as, as possible but there's so much more to talk about in terms of the people that I can't get to. So I spoke about Ben already so I won't touch upon Ben too much but Ben opened up Tuesday morning and he was followed by Liam Tonland. Liam Tonland, his talk called Out of Africa was really great talk on the theme of migration. Liam is is from Dublin. He worked in in Connemara as a chef, and then he left, went to Australia, and then ended up in South Africa. And Liam spoke about, I suppose, trying to give back in terms of, of, of being someone of privilege in South Africa, of being a chef, of uh, being quite secure and trying to give back to different communities and trying to train people from the townships and uh, offering them scholarships and he, he spoke of this wonderful project he has going uh, in terms of training disadvantaged people and th- this is really a really, really important aspect of food and it's something we really need to tap into uh, everywhere in the world, that we really need to utilise food to I suppose to pull people up out of their disadvantaged position because food is something that can do this and when you teach people how to cook or you teach people how to work in a restaurant you give them a skill and with that skill then they can fulfill the other aspects of their life again the restaurant is a vehicle for that uh, Arlene Stein that I mentioned already Arlene is, is a good friend of mine she runs terroir in Europe and she ran terroir in Canada and food in the edge I suppose was inspired by terroir it came out of my interaction with terroir and, and of going to Toronto and And seeing the ways in which the Canadians talked about food brought people to Toronto to bring their ideas and it was one of the catalysts again along along with mad and cook it raw that inspired me to do food in the edge but Arlene talked about food as a tool for diplomacy and food not having any borders and and that's really very much part of Arlene's project of terroir of bringing people from many many different places I I took part in a terroir in Poland um, a couple of years ago go uh, with Arlene and with many chefs from, from Poland and also from different places but it was very interesting for me as an outsider because when I think about Polish food I think about one thing and uh, when I got there I, I realised I suppose as, as as well as Irish food like I mean there are so many different facets to it and so uh, the Polish food in the south much more influenced by the Turkish Ottoman Empire and from the north much more influenced by Europe and of course and then you have influence from the, from the east as well from Russia so kind of almost like a melting pot of food culture but this is the, I suppose the way in which Arlene brings people together to talk about food to influence each other so that when we go back into our kitchens we can think about these things and articulate them. Another uh, interesting speaker was an Irish chef Paul Carroll who was currently in Russia cooking and Paul spoke about his journey from Tala to Russia and how I suppose cooking to a certain degree saved him and took him out of bad place where he was growing up in, in in Dublin and how we ended up in Russia and I think it's a fascinating story in terms of migration, in terms of how we end up where we are and it's very very different from, from where we began and all this process isn't necessarily thought through, and we often make have to make decisions on the fly but it was a very very interesting talk I think it was um, those three talks all on the subject of migration I think very much for, for me uh, summed up what Food on the Edge was this year, it was about looking at food to reach out to other people and to engage with them. Uh, Dan Gusty, uh, which I think I've mentioned before in this podcast, Dan was an uh, ex-head head chef of Noma who set up a catering company to feed children in schools in North America, was predominantly around, around the, on, on the East Coast. But Dan is, is again, uh, trying to feed kids. He's feeding like... Uh, a high volume of children and trying to feed them nutritious food and trying to make a change. And Dan's talk, which was probably one of the most popular of Food in the age, because he came from fine dining, which is, I suppose, the preserve of a very small amount of people. You're cooking for 40 or 50 people every night. Going to feeding thousands of people every single day with a very uh, minimal budget and, and how you do this and how you fulfill the guidelines that you have to fulfill, but also how you reach out and touch people through food. Both Pratik and Ivan spoke on day two. Pratik talked about the future of Indian food. Ivan, as I already said, talked about crossroads cooking, challenging authenticity in food. Both of those, for me, were standout talks. Christian Baumann, another Danish chef, again, gave a wonderful wonderful talk about trying to create growth and to create stimulation and to encourage creativity in staff and and the different programmes that he has running in in 108. Matt Orlando and his uh, development chef, Kim, talked about responsible deliciousness and and how we can make food delicious while also keeping ethically responsible in terms of zero waste and trying to upcycle the the ingredients that we leave behind, I mean Matt and Kim made a very very good point that often when we when we do these things we keep them in the to preserve of I mean the elite is the wrong word but if we if we keep them in the preserve of the people that we're feeding in the restaurant it's quite a small amount of people and and really Matt and Kim spoke about having trying to reach out to larger companies and to try and change their mentality because. If we don't change the mentality of larger companies, it doesn't really matter what we're doing on the ground. What we do on the ground is such a fraction of what actually happens in the world. And that's a really, really important thing to acknowledge. And so the big, massive food companies, the the top 10 in the world, these are the ones that we need to interact with about waste, about plastic, about responsibility, because if we don't change their minds, then a lot of what we do is perhaps for nothing. I know that's a, a very pessimistic way of thinking, but it is the truth. And lastly, I just saw from day two, I just want to draw attention to Rosio Sanchez, another ex-NOMA chef. And Rosio talked about authenticity in migration. Rosio is from Chicago of Mexican descent, who's cooking in Denmark. And I suppose that's a, that's an interesting uh, mix and how authenticity is fulfilled in that. Rosio runs two great Mexican restaurants or in Denmark at the moment in Copenhagen. Uh, one restaurant and one, I suppose, taqueria, I suppose what you'd call it. Rosio's spoke about, I suppose, about trying to fulfill uh, her own desire for authenticity, but also of, tr- of trying to, I suppose, just make the food that she wanted to make. And often we get bogged down uh, in thinking about... What we should be doing when I think what we should rather be doing is listening to our gut feeling and really of trying to feed people in the best way possible and I suppose let, let authenticity fall wherever it falls. That kind of like for me gives a little insight into what we talked about on Tuesday and, and Monday to a certain degree. There were other master classes on the, on the Tuesday. Uh, Sophia Hoffman, uh, Matt Orlando, both they gave classes as well. We also had interesting classes on fermentation but the Galway Berry Brewery in collaboration with Broaden & Build who designed a beer for Food and the Edge they also spoke about the beer industry and this is again something that is particular to I suppose to Matt's realm of things. Matt is the owner of Broaden & Build but he's very interested in trying to create really new and innovative beers Uh, I had a Gooseberry and Koji beer in Broaden & Build the last time I was there and it's a really amazing drink and I recommend anyone who's um, who's going to Copenhagen to pop in have a beer, have some Amas fried chicken. It's a really great way of seeing what the distillation of perhaps what man has been thinking about for many, many years from Noma and then to Amas and trying to reach more people through that term of responsible deliciousness. The last two things I want to talk about are that happened on Tuesday. One was our ambassador program, which is something we launched this year, or we launched last year, and it was a way of bringing people f- who possibly wouldn't get to speak at Food in the Edge, because we have a lot of interest in Food in the Edge, we have a lot of applications, we, we, we try and accommodate about 50 speakers over the two days in terms of speaking, masterclasses, panels. And so what we did was we set up an ambassador programme, we asked people to nominate both Irish and international people who were changing their food landscape. And we whittled it down to a short list of 10, and then we Picked six. Uh, these were Annette Sweeney, Deirdre Doyle, Paula Stakeham, uh, Chad Byrne, Devon O'Sullivan, and Ronan Fox. And all of them spoke with um, Mark Anderson, who was who was from Gather and Gather, who is one of the I suppose the principal sponsors of Food in the Edge. And they spoke about moving Food in the Edge forward into new realms and into I suppose trying to affect as many people as possible with this idea of food education, this idea of cultural impact of food. And it's a program that we've just launched again yesterday. So if you are interested in becoming an ambassador, what it involves is really nominating yourself or somebody else that you think is changing food somewhere in Ireland or in the world, changing the food landscape or the food culture. And we'll give you a ticket to Food in the Edge and come along to the excursion. You can take part, you can speak on stage and be a part of the the process that is Food in the Edge. The last thing that I will touch upon is our Food in the Edge babies. And what I mean by that is not necessarily real babies, but uh, people who have changed their career because of food on the edge. And this year we had Sasu Laconin talk to a chef, an Irish chef called Adam Kavna. Who, because of food in the edge, went to work with SASU for uh, for two years, I think, and now is working in the states. But it's these transformations that are important to highlight because, I suppose, it's the reality of, of food in the edge, and it's that uh, with food in the edge, it has a very organic feel, and it's very hard sometimes to pinpoint the learning outcomes or, or what is the purpose of food in the edge. And I think one of the great things about it is is encouraging people to either enter the industry or to encourage people to better themselves to encourage people to get involved in food and try and utilize food as a vehicle for social change. I mean, for me, that sums up the, the highlights of the two days. We brought the speakers to Connemara this year and we showcased the Connemara in terms of its food, its culture, its music. And they really had a, had a wonderful time because uh, as, as anyone knows who has been to Food in the Edge or who's interested in it, the one part of it is, is getting the speaker to speak and to get them to teach us about what they know about. And the other part is very much showing them aspects of Irish food and Irish food culture, and and getting them to enjoy it in a very very holistic way. So that's all from me for today. We'll be back soon with another uh, Food in the Edge podcast. If you have any questions, do email us at info at foodintheedge.ie. If you have any topics you want us to talk about, or if anything else that you may think of. So, uh, from me and Shamik, uh, I'll talk to you next time.